You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Well, I must say, Tim, that I'm thankful uh, for, for two reasons. One, that you actually watched a real football game <laughs> instead of European football. Um, congratulations. I'm also thankful that you did not play Baby Shark because I would have melted into a puddle of post-traumatic goo should you have played. Yeah, guess what you're going to do. Such is my life. Well, now it's up to Dr. Holloman to save us. Um, uh, President Dr. Christopher Holloman uh, hails from North Carolina, but unfortunately received his undergraduate degree from UNC. But eventually he got out um, and received his master's and doctorate from uh, the University of Chicago in the areas of political science and international cooperation, especially in the area of monetary policy. And we are thankful uh, for Dr. Holloman's leadership. Uh, we also welcome Connie uh, here with us today. And we say a prayer of thanksgiving uh, for also Allie and Fran, the entire Holloman clan, uh, as they sojourn with us uh, at Centenary College and in Shreveport and Bossier. Would you please welcome Dr. Christopher Holloman. I could take this opportunity to uh, uh, teach you another song. Uh, since we're in church, I will just sing the first line. We don't give a darn about Duke University, because we're from Carolina. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for having us, uh, all of us. It's a, a real uh, honor for us, for Asbury to host uh, Centenary Sunday. Uh, one of the pillars of our strategic plan that we're in the third year of calls for Centenary to be Shreveport Bossier's College. And we're tightly uh, associated with friends over here uh, across the river, our, our Student Government Association president, same person last year and this year. I'm pretty sure, Amir's from Bossier, isn't he? Yes, yeah. And uh, the backbone of our new lacrosse uh, men's team uh, is from Airline uh, Drive High School just uh, down the road. So uh, we, we uh, treasure our relationship uh, with Bossier. Um, a week ago, this is the end of a long and busy uh, homecoming week, and uh, last Saturday night, one of the joys of my job is that the choir lets me hang out with them some, and uh, uh, a week ago, after their big Rhapsody concert, uh, there was a banquet, and I was, Connie and I were sitting at the table with a couple of our choir members and, and one of the families, and, and the mom asked me, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what brought you to Centenary? And... Uh, I was, was very happy. I like, like telling that story. It, uh, we are, Connie and I are both from North Carolina, so we were glad to get back to the South. Uh, I am a lifelong United Methodist, so being in that faith tradition was important. But I also talked about 
uh, my, the importance and my love of the liberal arts and the importance of uh, Centenary as a liberal arts college. And we began to talk about that. And of course, some people, not, I'm sure nobody here, but some people have the mistaken notion that liberal in that context has something to do with politics, liberal and conservative. And of course it doesn't. Uh, liberal arts education gives you the tools and the habits of mind to think and be free, liberal in that sense, liberated. And so my message today kind of reflects the habits of mind. When somebody says, what is a liberal arts education? I, I, my short definition is it teaches you to think and make connections and bring all the tools in your intellectual toolbox to bear. And so maybe if you'll just kind of bear with me as I give you a little back, background into how I thought through and, and the pieces that make up what I hope will end up being a coherent uh, message. Although I have to say that this morning I'm also troubled by the fact that yesterday uh, Connie and I were uh, spending the morning with uh, uh, folks on campus for their 50th uh, college reunion, 50th class of 1969. And Connie told me later at the end, one of them came up to and said to her, you all are a perfect team, saying, speaking to Connie. You're the people person and he's the wonk. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, thank you, Dr. Wicken, for being particularly amused by that. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I hope at least the first part of this sermon, it, it occurs to me, might be a little wonkish, but, um, but, but here we go. So usually for Centenary Sunday, I, I try and, when I preach, I try and think of a theme that runs through the church and the academy. And so last, uh, last year at Broadmoor, I, I had a message about faith and reason and that kind of thing. But... If it's not Centenary Sunday, and I, get, I have the pleasure of preaching and teaching Sunday school fairly often, and I turn first to the Revised Common Lectionary to see what the readings for the week are. And I'm sure you know the Revised Common Lectionary is a structure of a three-year cycle of uh, four readings for each Sunday, an Old Testament, a Psalm, a Gospel, and an Epistle lesson. And the idea is that if a church used all four readings, that over the course of the three years, you would hear most of the, the important parts of the Bible, not, all, not necessarily all the boring stuff in Leviticus and things like that. But, um, so uh, I turned to the Revised Common Lectionary, and the Old Testament lesson from today is from the book of Haggai. And I recognize that there's some differences of opinion on how to pronounce that, but we're going with Haggai today. And it's the only time in the entire three years that the lectionary comes from the book of Haggai. So being a scholar, I thought, I can't miss this. Here's a chance that, you know, because even when it comes up, most pastors, uh, you know, don't usually preach from the Old Testament unless it's one of the really familiar old stories. So uh, I couldn't resist. And so, and as I did my, my homework on this, it turns out to be quite fascinating. The book of Haggai is one of those last little ones buried in the back of the Old Testament. It's only about two pages long, depending on how big the print in your, in your scripture is. It, um, it is only two chapters long, and it tells really just one specific story. And what's really interesting about it is that we can place it almost exactly in time because of external references. We know exactly when this took place took place in uh, the late fall or late summer and fall of 520 BC. And what had happened, as you know, prior to that, the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem, torn down the temple, sent um, lots of the, of the Hebrews to Babylon. And then subsequently, the Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Persians. 
And uh, King Darius of the Persians uh, was worried about having a, um, a dis uh, disorder in his backyard as he was actually trying to fight the Egyptians. So he let the, the uh, Jews come back to Jerusalem. And that's where this story happens. The Jews have been, the Hebrews have been back in, in Jerusalem for about 18 years. And they've done some rebuilding, but maybe not quite enough. And so here is our gospel reading, to, or not our gospel, our Old Testament reading today from the book of Haggai, uh, the second chapter. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the Lord's word came through Haggai the prophet. Say to Judah's governor Zerubbabel, Shealtiel's son, and to the chief priest Joshua, Jehozadak's son, and to the rest of the people, say this, who among you is left who, have, who saw this house in its former glory? And how does it look to you now? Does it appear as nothing to you? So now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, high priest Joshua, Jehozadak's son, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heavenly forces. As with our agreement when you came out of Egypt, my spirit stands in your midst. Don't fear. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces says. In just a little while, I will make the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land quake. I will make all the nations quake. The wealth of all the nations will come. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of heavenly forces. The silver and the gold belong to me, says the Lord of heavenly forces. This house will be more glorious than its predecessor, says the Lord of heavenly forces. I will provide prosperity in this place, says the Lord of heavenly forces. This is the word of the Lord. So the Hebrews have been back in Jerusalem and they've been back and they've been working and they, they built a little temple sort of and they'd actually started it and then the local governors were worried about it so they made them stop and they worked on their houses. And in this passage, God comes through the prophet and says, you've gotten your priorities mixed up. You've forgotten what's important. Get to work, get to work on rebuilding a temple. Is it going to be as grand? Isn't that a wonderful? He says to, he's talking to the old men and women. How many of you here, he says, remember how beautiful Solomon's temple was? Is this as nice as that one? He says, and no is the, the obvious answer. But it will be, or something will be, because I, God, have all the riches. It all belongs to me. And I will make this a beautiful place. And I will bring you prosperity. Now, sometimes this passage has been part of that warping of, of God's word to talk about the prosperity gospel. And God will, but actually, again, my homework shows me the word that's translated here as prosperity is a much more is familiar to us in a much different way. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Prosperity, peace. God will promise us. And so I began to think through this and, and, you know, why is God so concerned with having a temple? And, you know, those, you know there's a, a long history of, of scholarship and thought about the importance of the temple, especially to the Jews as they built, they do build a second temple and then it's destroyed in the early part of the, of the AD uh, era. And, and we think through, why do we need houses of worship? What does God say? God says, wherever two or more are you, of you are, I am there also. So I began to think about what is it that causes us to need or want or God to want these 
these places. And I, my mind flipped over to a psalm that we're all familiar with, the 100th Psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. And there, friends, I had my connection back to Centenary Sunday, knowing that the choir was going to be here. The choir, the, as, and as also as we heard in our children's moment, the choir, the, the makers, the providers, the trustees of joyful noise. We hear them all the time. And I began to unpack that a little bit more. Why does, why does God call, why does the psalm call for making a joyful noise? And of course, it's right there in the 101st psalm, the, I'm sorry, the 100th psalm. It alternates between an exhortation to make a joyful noise and then telling us why. Why do we make joyful noises? Because no, we must know that the Lord is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That's why we make joyful noise. But let's think about that word noise. Joyful noise. Not singing. We get to that later in the psalm. But simply emoting, simply making wonderful noise. You know, there's something primal about making noise. In fact, some of you, if you're as, as old as I am, you remember back in the, I guess probably in the 70s or the 80s, the whole therapy movement around primal scream, right? Does somebody remember that? That you're just supposed to scream and it would cleanse you or something. And, and this comes out over and over again. I don't know if many of you watched the HBO series over the winter, I think it was over the winter, uh, Big Little Lies, and uh, Meryl Streep was in that, and the greatest actress of our time uh, in this one scene for, I can't even remember why, but all of a sudden she lets out this blood-curdling scream, and everybody's like, wow, this is crazy. Making noise is, is something that resonates deep within us. When the choir, again, we were honored, we get to travel uh, with the choir on their international trips every other year. And this past May, they travel internationally every other year. It's not that they only let us go every other year. Um, uh, we were, the trip this year was through Eastern Canada, especially French-speaking Canada, as we explored our Acadian roots. But uh, we ended up in, in Montreal. Well, first in Quebec City, Connie and I went to the museum and saw an, an exhibit, and then we uh, were at a gallery in, in Montreal. And one of the themes that runs through Inuit uh, native art is uh, animals, especially polar bears, um, that are, are are doing this and they're dancing and you can see from their mouth that they're making joyful noise and it's because in the Inuit spiritual tradition they've been reincarnated and so they're dancing and celebrating and making joyful noise. We love that so much that, that we brought home a piece of Inuit art. It's not a polar bear, it's a rabbit because we like rabbits but um, uh, I, I was struck by that. Some of you might know the, the line from the great American poet Walt Whitman, I sound my barbaric yawp. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. We make noise. We make noise when we're happy. We make noise when we're sad. But it's important, I think, to, to understand that this calling to do something, to say something, because so often, sometimes when we're challenged, we don't know what to say. How often have we failed to pick up the phone when one of our friends has had 
a challenge or a loss. And I said, I just don't know what to say. How have we sometimes not gone to someone that we've made mad to apologize? I just don't know what to say. It would be awkward. My Sunday school class, I used to lead the adult Sunday school class in our little church, uh, Methodist Church in Buffalo, New York, where we were before we moved here. And we read a book, it's actually a book intended for clergy, um, about the problem of, of you know, what, what happened, what do you say when bad things happen? Um, and the, the problem of, of uh, was that Theophany, uh, uh, District Superintendent? Uh, and, and the title of the book is, what, is, what shall we say? What shall we say when, when bad things happen to good people, as another book says? And I think God calls us but to, to say, but of course we're also reminded in Romans that when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit will come and provide that for us, Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Sighs too deep for words. Sometimes just sighing, making noise, gives us touch of the holy. The creation myth of the aboriginal people in Australia involves the gods walking through the outback, wordlessly singing, singing creation into existence. Singing and the holy places in Australia, I have not had the uh, the privilege of being that next uh, choir trip, uh, David, is uh, Australia. Um, but in the outback, there are places that are, are noted as song lines. These are the places they can track where the gods walked to sing life into existence. And that brought me, as I began to reflect on that, one last piece of, uh, that, that bounced around in my brain for this sermon. I was listening after I was sort of understood where I think God was leading me today and was listening to NPR on a Saturday morning. They were interviewing a, uh, an author and she's just published a book. Her name's Sarah Elaine Smith. And she, it's about growing up in Appalachia. It's a novel. Um, but she had one line that she read from that book that stuck with me for some reason. You know the world by the shape of what comes back when you yell. You know the world by the shape of what comes back when you yell. I began to think about that and it seems to me that there's two aspects to that. One of them is this sort of echolocation, right? That, you know, if, if you're uh, different animals and, and, I mean, that's the whole point of, of people that are visually impaired using a cane, they can, uh, in addition to the tactile, they can hear uh, what comes back. You get a sense of what's around with you. You make noise and you see what comes back to you. What is the world looking? But there's another aspect to that, I think. The world knows us by what we yell. And I think that's my final point, that we need to be mindful of what we're yelling. Making noise in and of itself doesn't have a whole lot of value. The content 
of our noise, it turns out, is important because the world knows us through the shape of what we yell. And God knows us. And in fact, sometimes our lesson today from, from Haggai is contrasted with a different lesson from earlier in the Old Testament, one of my favorite pieces of scripture and one that's familiar. God, I think, warns us that it's great to make joyful noise and it's great to have, have a good time in worship, but let's don't forget what's really important. What do we do in God's name? And it's, at its most extreme, we hear it in the book of Amos, in the fifth chapter where God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grass offerings, I will not accept them. And these offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll add, parenthetically, take away from me the noise of your songs because you've forgotten what you're supposed to be making noise about. Take away from me. It's not the noise, it's not the song, it's what it's distracting you from doing. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but what? You all know this. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We sing, yes, because we celebrate a God that promises shalom, that promises us, promises us prosperity and a place. Finally, I was sitting in church, and I won't—I don't actually even remember what, <laughs> what church it was. And I, well, no, and I had looked at the Bible, and I had looked at Psalm 100 because I was going to preach on that, and I looked over at Psalm 101. And Psalm 101 at the very beginning has one interesting uh, verse that, that we'll come to in a minute. And then about two weeks ago, I was in church again and was sort of reflecting on the sermon. And I thought, what was that verse in Psalm 101? So I picked up the church we were in. I don't think he had pew Bibles. I picked up the hymnal. And of course, as you know, in the back with the responsive readings, you have almost all the Psalms. And I flipped through and the 101st Psalm is missing. It's, it's not in there. And so I flip back to the little index where it shows you the sources of all the prayers and so forth. Nothing in the whole hymnal that refers to the 101st Psalm. Boy, this Psalm is the poor step cousin of the Psalms. What's going and I don't, actually don't know why, but God led me to it anyway, because the very first verse of the 101st Psalm wraps this all together. I will sing, the verse says. I will sing of loyalty and of justice to you, O Lord, I will sing. It's not one or the other. God doesn't want us not to sing. God wants us to make joyful noise. But God wants us to sing about justice. When we make our barbaric yawp across the rooftops of the world, when we send out the noise that the world will know us by, God wants us to be doing justice, as Micah 6.8. So I leave you with that today. What's your noise? What is our noise? What does the world know of us from the shape of what comes back 
when we yell. Amen. Spirit, we.